Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, it is Easter, but we are going to continue through our series in Romans. This is what we're going through here at New Life, taking one passage at a time, working our way through the book of Romans, and we're in chapter 8, which I've been calling the greatest chapter in Romans, which is the greatest letter in the Bible, which is the greatest book ever written. So it's appropriate that on the greatest Sunday of the year, Easter Sunday, that we reflect on these final verses of chapter 8, which bring this wonderful chapter to a climax. And what we learn from this is that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is at least one good thing that will never come to an end. And that's what we're celebrating today. So let's stand and read this passage, Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we are so grateful today for what you have done for us in Jesus. Would you please, by your Spirit, give us insight and understanding into the depths of the riches of the wisdom of this passage of Scripture that you wrote for us through your Holy Spirit and your servant, Paul, centuries ago. Warm our hearts and prepare us to leave this place rejoicing in the good news that Jesus is alive. In his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Because Jesus Christ is risen, we have the assurance this morning that his love for sinners will never end. This is the one good thing that will not come to an end, and we have this assurance from the passage that I have just read to you, as well as many other passages in the Bible. It's very interesting how chapter 8 of Romans begins with this declaration that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and now it ends with a declaration that there is no separation between God's love for sinners and His people. And because this is true, because of this good thing that will not come to an end, we can take at least three things from this that gives us some direction about how we can live our lives in light of the resurrection and in light of Romans 8, 31 to 39. So first thing is this. 
you need not live in worry. Your life need not be dominated by anxiety and worry because of this good thing that we're hearing about that will never come to an end. Now, we worry about a lot of things, don't we? Personally, I'm a worrier. I tend to be anxious about many things, and I'm sure many of you can identify with various anxieties about our retirement, about how our children are going to turn out, about whether we'll find a job after graduation, about whether we'll be sick or how we're going to die. Many of us are plagued with various worries and anxieties. And there's another worry that some of you might have, and this is the most serious, the most significant of all the concerns that we might have as human beings, and the concern is this. Is it possible that God would cast me off? Is it possible that the love of God for me would wither up and fly away? Is it possible that God would revoke the promise that He made to me in salvation and take away from me the forgiveness of sins that I've received in Him and kick me out of His family? Is that even possible for a Christian? That might be something that you're concerned about. That might be something that you're worried about. If there's one thing to be concerned about, that is certainly a good question to ask. Is that even possible? You know, your boss might tell you, tell you someday you're fired. Your spouse might say to you one day, I want a divorce. Your doctor might say to you one day, you have cancer. Th- those are all things that perhaps many of us are, are worried about and concerned about. But here is the worst thing a person could ever hear. God Almighty speaking to you and saying, I am against you. Now, some of you might be thinking, is that even possible? I don't think God could be against anybody. It's God's job job to to love everybody. Is is this possible? Well, it is. If you look back in Jeremiah chapter 50, here's what God says to Babylon. Behold, Babylon, I'm against you. O proud one, declares the Lord God of hosts, for your day has come, the day when I will punish you. If you look at the rest of the chapter, because of Babylon's proud defiance of the Lord, God says to them, I'm against you. Now, here's the wonderful promise that we see in this passage. If we begin at verse 31, look at the question that Paul asks. And throughout this passage, Paul's asking a number of kind of rhetorical questions. He doesn't give the answers, but the answers are implied. And here is his first question in verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? Now, what things is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about the things that he'd been talking about in the previous verses and that we talked about last Sunday here at New Life, verses 28 to 30, where we learn that God is working all things together for good and that he, in his sovereign wisdom from before the foundation of the world, predestined his people to be saved and that he made sure then that those people were called through the hearing of the gospel that they believed in the gospel, that they were justified, and that they were glorified. So in light of those wonderful things, in light of that knowledge, in light of the promise that our salvation from top to bottom, A to Z, start to finish, is a result of God's sovereign, glorious grace, 
who can be against you? That's what Paul's saying. Look at that next phrase in verse 31. If God is for us, who can possibly be against you? Now, Paul's not saying that this means that there's not going to be anybody in this life who is against you in some ways. Some of you might be in relationships where people are against you. Maybe you do have a boss who's against you, or a sibling who's against you, or a spouse you feel like is against you, or an ex-spouse who is against you. Paul's not denying that those things occur. What he's saying is the most important thing, the most essential thing, the most valuable thing in your life, that is your salvation, your right standing before God, the forgiveness of your sins, the assurance that God loves you and wants you and is for you, That is the most important thing that you can know is true of you. And if that is true, then everything else in your life just pales in comparison. All your worries pale in comparison to the knowledge of that one glorious truth. And this is what Paul is communicating to us here. In other words, if whatever it is that you're worried about, the best thing has been taken care of. And so what that means is that God is going to take care of the lesser things. And so in verse 32, this is what he does. He argues from the greater to the lesser. Do you see what he says? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that's the greater thing, the most important thing, the most wonderful thing. Well, if that's true, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, food and shelter and clothing and everything that is needful for us. Not everything that we necessarily want, but everything that we need to fulfill what we read about in verses 28 and 30. That is the full completion of our salvation. So what is there to worry about? If God is for us, Who can be against us? Who can call into question these things? This is the security that we have in the gospel. If you're full of worry today, I mean, here's what worry really is. Worry is fear that you won't get what you want or fear that you're going to lose something valuable that you have. (laughs) That's the essence of worry. That you're not going to get something you really want or that you're going to lose something that you value that you have. And what Paul is saying here is that the most important thing that you can ever desire is something that is yours and will never be taken away. I'm talking to Christians here today. Now remember back in verse 28, we talked about this last week, that this promise that all things are working together for good is for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. Paul's talking to Christians here. This is a promise for Christians. If you're not a Christian here today, we we are really happy that you're here, and we always welcome people from different points of view here. We're glad that you're here. But one of the things that I would urge you today to do today, if you haven't already, is become a Christian so that these promises that I'm talking about can be true for you too. But what Paul does here at the end of this chapter is he closes it out with this, 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 this exalted, powerful description of how secure the Christian is in God's love for sinners. In verses 37 to 39, 38 and 39 in particular, 
he gives us this, this wonderful description of, of all of these things that cannot get in the way, that can't interrupt the love of God for you, Christian. He says, there's no life experience. Verse 38, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nothing that you'll experience in your life, not even the end of your life in death, can interrupt the generous, constant flow of love from God to you in Christ Jesus. No life experience. Not only that, but nothing in the spiritual realm. He goes on in verse 38. Nor angels, nor rulers, no spirits, no demons, nothing in the unseen spiritual world, no principality, no no power of Satan or his minions can interrupt this flow of love from God for you in Christ Jesus. There's nothing in time. He goes on, nor things present, nor things to come. There, there's nothing in the future. We don't know the future. God does, but we don't know what's going to happen in 10 years or 15 years or 30 years. We don't know. But what Paul is saying is that whatever it is, whatever happens in this world in the future, it's not going to get in the way of the flow of God's redemptive love for you. It's not going to interrupt that. Nor is there anything in the past that can interrupt that flow of God's love. Nothing in time can dissolve God's love. There's no power, Paul says next. No powers at the end of verse 38. No political power, no military power, no demonic power can interrupt the flow of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. And not even anything in physical space. Start of verse 31, nor height, nor depth. <laughs> There's nothing up in the sky or in outer space or in a black hole somewhere or on a planet or a different galaxy. There's, there's nothing out there that's going to get in the way of the flow of God's redemptive love for you. Nor is there anything in the depths. There's nothing in the center of the earth. There's nothing in the depths of the ocean that can interrupt, stop, or even slow down God's love for you. So why are you worrying? What's there to worry about? I, I, I'm not trying to minimize your worries. I said, I'm a worrier. I worry about things. And I'm just perplexed. Why do I worry when this is true? Why do you worry when this is true? The day's going to come where we're going to pass into the next life, and we're going to be with Jesus for an eternity, and we're going to look back on the things that we worry about, and we're just going to laugh at ourselves. Why were we so worried about these things when these wonderful spiritual realities are true? So that's the first thing. You need not live in worry because the love of Christ for sinners will never come to an end. But we have a second thing here. You need not live in fear either. A little different than worry. Similar, but a little different. You need not live in fear. A lot of things in the world, it seems like today, to be afraid of. We hear about the advancement of ISIS in, in this world and how they're committing genocide and they're persecuting Christians. We hear about global warming and we're told that it's happening faster than anybody thought and the coming catastrophe 
possibly as a result of that. We hear about coming economic collapse, possibly. You read the news, you hear the reports, and you hear one thing after another that seems to do nothing but elevate our fears. And so Paul, in this passage, lists a number of things that we might be afraid of and makes a similar point that we saw in verse 1. Verse 35, here's his question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, what's the answer? He doesn't answer that. The the, the answer is nothing. It's a rhetorical question. Nothing. And so he gives some examples. Uh, Shall tribulation or or distress, hardship, trials, crises, will those things get in the way of the love of God in Christ for you? You know, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. You know, we, we all have trouble in our lives, right? I mean, maybe for you it's the, it's the trouble, it's the hardship of having lost a parent or a, a loved one or a spouse or the, the trouble, the challenge of living in this world as, as a widow and struggling to get along alone. Maybe it's the, the trouble and the hardship of trying to discover God's will. What does He want for you? You don't know. You think you want to go one way, but maybe the other way, and you feel like you're trapped. Maybe it's the hardship and the distress of being single in a world filled with a lot of happy families. Maybe for you it's the struggle of same-sex attraction, and you're in the church, and you don't feel like you can talk about it, and there's no safe place to discuss it. Maybe it's the hardship of being a single mother and all of the challenges that are before you as you're trying to raise your kids alone. Maybe it's the challenge or the hardship of mental illness of bipolar disorder or depression. What Paul is saying here is that none of those things, as hard as they are, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. None of those things mean anything about God withdrawing His love or not loving you or being apathetic to you in some way. He goes on and he mentions after tribulation and distress, persecution. Maybe some of you are dealing with persecution as, as, as a Christian. It's not that you're being put in jail or being burned at the stake, but maybe you've lost some friends because of your profession of Christ. Maybe people are looking at you as a, as a narrow-minded, judgmental bigot because of the views that you hold, and you feel kind of persecuted. Paul says that doesn't change the love of God for you. He goes on to even give more extreme examples at the end of verse 35. He talks about famine, nakedness, danger, sword. A lot of these are fairly self-explanatory. Severe hunger, famine, nakedness probably refers more to just severe poverty. Danger or sword, even to the point of perhaps losing your life for the sake of the gospel. Even that does not stop God's love for you in Christ Jesus. I had a friend in seminary named Leon Tombing, who was from India, and I remember him saying that he planned on graduating from seminary and going back to India and dying. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure that that's going to happen, and I'm fully prepared for it. I read in uh, The Voice of the Martyrs recently that for Christians in North Korea, if they choose to share their faith with people in North Korea, 
those who are active in evangelism, their average life expectancy is three months. And this is what Paul is talking about because he quotes here in verse 36 from Psalm 44, for your sake, for your sake, God, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. For your sake, we're proclaiming your word and we're being persecuted for it. Paul puts that in there in the context of this whole passage to bring encouragement to you who are weighted down with trouble and hardship and distress and persecution and danger. And he's assuring you, God loves you in the midst of this. He has not revoked his love. He is not casting you off. He is committed to you. Now, I know for some of you, you might say, well, that's easy to say. That's nice theology. But I don't know that it really brings a whole lot of comfort to me. Well, I just want you to know, I'm just telling you what Paul wrote, what Paul said. And you have to see that Paul is not speaking in the abstract here. Paul is speaking from personal experience. And we can see this if we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And look at Paul's experience. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and a day, I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, from robbers, from my own people, danger from Gentiles. I've been in danger in the city, out in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. All of those things Paul experienced, and it's that same man who's writing to you in Romans 8 and telling you that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus for sinners. Nothing. That, that must have been, that's the only thing I can think of that got Paul through all that stuff, is just knowing that he was loved by God in the midst of it. And I think that's the only way that you and I can get through it. It's the only way that we can keep from coming apart at the seams. Is to have this assurance that God's love for us is not only unbreakable, but because Jesus is risen from the grave and has overcome death, he must be able to overcome all these other lesser hardships. He must be worthy of my trust. It must be worth it to depend on him. It must be worth it not to give up hope. So what is your fear today? What is it that's plaguing you? What is it that has you paralyzed? Meditate on this passage. And you'll find the strength that Paul found. One last thing. You also need not live in guilt. You need not live in guilt. Many Christians are plagued with guilt. We're told all the time that we're forgiven of our sins. We do that every Sunday here. We have our confession of sin. We pronounce an assurance of pardon as a way of declaring to you that your sins are forgiven. But I know a lot of you still carry guilt. 
You feel guilty because you haven't prayed enough this week, you haven't read your Bible enough. You're feeling guilty because of recurring besetting sins you can't seem to get over. You're feeling guilty because of past sins. It seems just so egregious and they just haunt you. And you're just, you're thinking, you know, I haven't really gotten paid back for that yet, but the day is coming. Here's another good thing that will never come to an end. The inclination and capacity in God's heart to extend full grace and pardon to his children when they come to him for forgiveness. That is one good thing that will never come to an end. God is much more eager to forgive than we are to confess. And so Paul tells us about this in this passage. He asks some more questions. If you look back in verse 33, he says, Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? Who's going to accuse us of wrongdoing? It's God who justifies. The answer to that question, again, is there's nobody who's going to because God is the one who justifies it. Who's going to trump the verdict of God? And in verse 34, he asks a similar question. He says, Who is to condemn? Again, rhetorical question. What's the answer? No one. No one. No one can condemn you for your sins. That's what Paul is saying. Now, it's very important for us to understand why is that true? Why is it that you as a Christian cannot be condemned for your sins? I think a lot of Christians get this mixed up. Why is this? It's not because God won't judge anybody. It's not because we have a God who is a non-judgmental God. That's what our culture wants us to, to believe. But I already showed you Jeremiah chapter 50. God was against the Babylonians. He is against people who are willful and proud, uh, proudly defiant against his reign. He's against them and still is. That's not the reason. It's not because your sin isn't so bad either. That's something else we hear in our culture a lot. This sin and that sin, we used to think it was bad back in the day, but now we know it's normal, and so it's not so bad. Well, if you were here at the Good Friday service, you know sin is bad. Sin is really bad. Sin is so bad that it required the Son of God to go and die this painful, humiliating death on the cross. So that's not the reason why there's no condemnation. And it's also not because, well, you just have to learn to forgive yourself. Sometimes we hear that a lot that this is the key to being freed from guilt. Just learn to forgive yourself. Friends, you don't have the authority to forgive yourself. It's not up to you to do that. It's not been given to you to do that. What, what does Paul say? It is God who justifies. God's the one who forgives. There is no proper forgiveness except that which comes from God. You might convince yourself that your sins aren't so bad and tell yourself that you're forgiven for your sins, but unless you look to the provision that God has made for your sins and put your trust in what He has done in Christ, there is no forgiveness for you. And that's what Paul goes on to explain in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Then he goes on and he explains, Here, here's why, Christian, you don't have to fear condemnation. Here's why you can let go of your guilt. 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. When he died, he shed his blood. When he shed his blood, it paid for your sins. Your sins were paid for at that time. Pardon for you was purchased when Jesus died and shed his blood. But it wasn't just that he died. More than that, who was raised from the dead? He was raised from the dead. And when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, it was like the Father was saying, Ah, payment for sins accepted, received, salvation done. The resurrection was the Father's way of saying, I am pleased, I am happy with what Jesus has done for sinners, for those that I want to save. I accept what he's done, and I have nothing left in my anger towards sin for those people because the penalty has been paid. And it's been so completely finished that the passage goes on to say that Jesus is at the right hand of God, the place of preeminence where he has sat down having finished our salvation, and indeed, even now at this moment, is interceding on our behalf. I wonder what the disciples thought when Jesus was in the tomb. They've been following him and listening to him during his ministry on earth, and they watched him die on the cross. They watched his body be taken off and laid in a tomb, and they watched that stone get rolled over the tomb. And you know what they must have thought? I thought he was the one. I, th I, thought, I really thought that he was going to be the one. I guess all good things do come to an end. That's probably what they thought. Just like we say today. Yep. Everything I hope in, eventually it just falls flat. Every good thing I'm clinging to dries up. I guess all good things come to an end. And then came Easter morning. And Jesus comes out of the grave. He comes to his disciples. He shows them the marks in his hands. He says, look, I was once dead, and now I'm alive. There are some good things that won't come to an end. And because of this, you can know your sins are forgiven. I've paid the penalty. You are free, Christian. You're free. One of the problems I think we do as Christians is we, we take the place of God in placing a verdict on ourselves that God is not placing on us. As there's a Puritan, Thomas Wilcox, he said this. He says, Christ is the judge, not us or our conscience. So never for a moment dare to take the judge's place by proclaiming irreparable guilt when he proclaims hope, grace, and pardon. If we think our sin is too great to be pardoned, remember that Christ does not agree he does not agree with you, Christian, when you're condemning yourself for your sins, when you keep bringing up those past things that you've done, when you immerse yourself in your guilt and your shame. You just have to know, Jesus does not agree with you when you do that. You're in disagreement on that verdict because he has pronounced a verdict on you, justified, not guilty. So friends, let go of the guilt. You don't have to live in guilt because Jesus is raised. 
So friends, the next time somebody says to you, all good things must come to an end, you, you can just say, you know what? <laughs> that happens a lot, that's true a lot, but, but there, is one, there is one exception. And it's the love of God in Christ for sinners. And there's nothing in all of creation that can stop it or dissolve it or slow it down. Some of you have read uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia Chronicles, and there's just a, a wonderful little passage at the end of the last book in the series, the book, The Last Battle. And you know the main character, the lion, is Aslan. And um, Aslan's speaking to the children, and then Lewis kind of makes this commentary as, as the whole Narnia Chronicles comes to an end, and this, it's this wonderful picture of the eternal nature of God's love as we look to our own eternity and the certainty of the resurrection of our own bodies. And Lewis says this, for, for them, for the children, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Not all good things come to an end, friends, because Jesus Christ is risen. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you so much for this good news. Oh, Lord, our hearts are sluggish. We admit it. Lord, we are so easily distracted from the goodness of your gospel. Would you please fill our hearts with joy as we meditate on these things that you've written for us in Romans chapter 8. Um, God, thank you so much. You have gone to such great lengths to save us and redeem us. Father, deliver us from our worries, deliver us from our fears, and deliver us from our guilt. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.